Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hi, everybody. <laughs> wait, wait. I think I think the intro to this episode, the first words that the audience will hear is kaboom. <laughs> so, let's see. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, we're back kaboom. with episode 13 of Undersampled Radio. After a brief hiatus, we had a couple of weeks off because Matt was out of the country doing awesome hacking gaming geo stuffs and we're going to hear about that soon um in my world nothing's happening uh but uh we're i've been working on a an inversion a new inversion product which is going to be pretty exciting kaboom and maybe i'll get to that later but first matt from vienna well he's back but how was vienna <laughs> uh yeah vienna's lovely um that was my first time in uh part of the world. Really liked it. Super easy to get around. Uh, the, the hackathon was fantastic. Really venue. Um, it was uh, in one of these impact hub uh, co-working spaces right in the middle of Vienna and super awesome hosts. Really nice space. Uh, we basically took it over for the whole weekend. We had kind of had the run of the place. Um, brought in some you know, fantastic food from some of the restaurants and bakeries in the neighborhood. And yeah, it was a great, it was a great weekend. And then it was the AGE, which was a conference. Essentially, you could probably imagine ex exactly what that was like, because uh, it was exactly like all other conferences that I've been to in geoscience. And, um, and then I had a few days in the UK hanging out with my family. It's good. Glad to be back there. Nice to be back here. Uh We've had a, a couple of uh, people chime in on Software Underground about their hackathon projects, and there was like a, a Tetris game where you had to align uh, geologic formations to, to find oil or something. It, it looks like you guys had a blast. Kaboom. And if you guys want to check out some of the code and some of the projects, uh, check us out at swung.rocks. Uh, Matt, I'm going to let you introduce our guest today. Um, we've talked previously to a couple of people about volcanoes. But we have a little twist on that today for you guys. So, Matt, take it away. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, re I'm really excited um, to have Mark Tinge here. Uh, so Mark's in Austria. He's a, um, a poor pressure guy, a poor pressure whiz, um, and has just really, like, there's so many things I want to ask him because if you kind of read through, you know, I've been... Uh, stalking him on, on LinkedIn or, or whatever. Um, and there's so many things I want to ask him about because he sort of seems to live in this space between academia and industry. Uh, he's been involved in the World Stress Map Project, um, been a research scientist in that uh, industry. And how I got to know him originally through, uh, I think through Twitter and through the blog uh, and through reading about the uh, crazy, gigantic mud volcano in East Java, um, which first erupted 
just over 10 years ago. And um, so we'll get to that as well. So I'm really excited to talk about all of those things. So, uh, Mark, hi. Hi. Hi, guys. Nice to be on the show. How's it going? And where Thanks are you? Uh, so I'm in my house in Perth, uh, Western Australia. So it's quite late at night here. I believe it's early morning where you guys are in the US. So it's, but yeah, it's a nice, it's the end of the week here. So it's a nice Friday evening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, awesome. Yeah, it's it's not too early for me, but yeah, I guess it's a little for, for you there, Graham. It's half past seven? It's half past seven, that's right. I've just finished my first cup of coffee. You're remarkably and, uh, bushy tail. <laughs> okay, yeah, nice. So um so how's it going? So you you've uh, you've recently been through one of these transitions that many people in our industry have ex experienced recently, and um, we talked to you a few weeks ago, uh, right, <laughs> right after you left Chevron. So, uh, how's how's life and how's how's things now nowadays? That was like a month yeah. Ago. So uh, I'm one of the people. I think the many hundreds of thousands, I guess, around the world that have been let go. Uh, over the last couple of years in the oil downturn, I got let go a couple of weeks ago. That was the very day that we uh, we had organised our first interview. Um, I've been enjoying a couple of weeks off, to be honest. It's uh, it's nice to take a bit of a break. Uh, you know, I'm still you know effectively I'm still an employee. I just don't have to go into work. They call it you know gardening right. vacation or something like that. You know, you just uh, can enjoy a bit of time with the family. I've been also getting a bit of some of my research done. I've got a few PhD students uh, from my academic time, from my academic uh, background. I'm still an adjunct associate professor at a couple of universities. And, you know, so there's, there's a few manuscripts to do. We're just finishing off the Australian stress map, for example, uh, which, is, which is quite exciting for us. And we've almost doubled yeah, yeah. the Australian stress map as well as the world stress map in the last, uh, last five or six years, or at least my colleagues have. Right. We'll put a link to the world stress map in the notes because if you haven't looked at it, it's it's really cool. Um, how how detailed, Mark, is the is the Australian stress map so far? <clears throat> the new Australian stress map, I believe. Now my PhD student probably tell me I've got this wrong. Uh, we've got well over two thousand data points now. Um, my my PhD student, uh, a, a really very talented student named Mushtaba Rajabi, uh, and he in fact got an award at your EAG conference just the other week. Um, he's uh, he's personally analysed hundreds of wells uh, in Australia, as well as with you know a, a number of us have analysed other wells. Uh, the, so the Australian stress map is now going to double from previously about a thousand data points to well over two thousand. Uh, it had fourteen geological provinces before, and it's now going to have about thirty. So it's doubling in both area covered as well as in numbers. And the world stress map, the new world stress map, the, the last one you've seen, which is available online, was actually in, released in 2009. Uh, we haven't actually updated online that for, for several years, but that'll be coming out at the end of this year. And that, again, will double to around 42,000 data points uh, from the current uh, of around 20,000. So we, it's not like it hasn't, it's been, it's just been working in the background. It's just that we only make the public updates about every several years. So yes, yeah, so that's a, that's a, a huge release. How did you first get involved in that in that project? Well, I did my PhD on in situ stresses uh, and pore pressures in Brunei, actually. So I lived that little country in Southeast Asia, in Northwest Borneo, 
I got very interested in stresses and stress determination and my supervisor was running the Australian Stress Map at the time. He'd been working on that since the late 1990s, or sorry, late 1980s, I should say. Um, and he'd been slowly building that up over many years with, with other PhD projects and, other, and his own research. Um, I got working more on Southeast Asia, but I kind of inherited the, I got into the, well, when my, sorry, I should say when my PhD was finishing up, um, I had a few offers or there was a few jobs going, and one of them was the World Stress Map Project, and it was a project that I, you know, really had idolized. I think it was one of the, in my field in geomechanics, one of the best projects around, you know, a real true project for general good, all publicly available, all just there to try to help people to understand stresses in the earth, and so... I got an opportunity to work on that for three years where I basically had carte blanche to work to build the, uh, the data sets from the oil industry. So we have a lot of data from earthquakes. That's quite easy for us to get. You know, it's centroid moment tense solutions. They're calculated almost every time a large earthquake uh, is around. But the data from petroleum industries, we actually have to manually go out and get. We have to convince companies to go and allow us to look at that data, to put that in a database. A lot of it's often confidential data. We have to get the agreements to make it public. And so it's really intensive work, but fascinating. It's from, you do little studies, you know, well here, well there, a few wells there, a field here, and suddenly you've developed for a country and then a continent and then, you know, and then the planet. And it's, it's amazing how much you can learn just from little, numerous little studies over years and then putting them all together. So I found it's a fascinating project. And even though I was only full-time working for it for three years, I've never stopped working on it. So throughout my career, I've really been actively engaged in trying to build that project. Yeah, amazing. Where's the data applied? Where's the data applied? Um, the, the biggest user is actually the petroleum industry. Uh, they actually make up a, a good, you know, there's about 1,000 maps downloaded a month from the World Stress Map that, that are by the petroleum industry. But there's a lot of also academic uses. So certainly it's... a uh, we see it seen. We see it published a lot in papers. We see a lot of people downloading it from from universities. Um, a little bit in the engineering space as well, like civil engineering. But the primary use of the petroleum industry and then and academia. Excellent. What other projects do you have going on with students right now? Um, I've got one with uh, so the, this this one on the on the world stress map. Mostly the Australian stress map. But we're also looking at New Zealand. Uh, he's also done a bit of work in Iceland. Um, I've got another project, another PhD student that's looking at pore pressure prediction in carbonates. Um, so that's higher pore pressures, the, the abnormal pore pressures that occur in, in rocks uh, that can be a, a major drilling hazard. The, we, we see them a lot in, in many basins. And every method that's used for pore pressure prediction is based on shales. But in the Middle East, we see a lot of high pore pressures that are in carbonates. And the methods aren't, apply, aren't applicable. So they're they're a significant drilling hazard uh, for our many parts of the Middle East, and so there's it's a it's one of these unsolved issues in pore pressure prediction and in drilling engineering um, that, that this student's trying to trying to tackle. And I've got another student who's looking at sort of who's a master's student looking at um, how solids are produced in coal seam gas in Queensland, so northeast and south it's northeast in Australia. So when they produce the water from the, the gas and the water from coal seam gas, they also produce a lot of solid material, which can get into the, which can make it very hard to uh, to process the, the, the gas and also can lock up a number of the infrastructure uh, as well as plug up the permeability of the well. So it's a, about trying to understand where that comes from and so how the rock is breaking as it's being as the gas is being produced. 
Sure. That's, that's my background. And... How rocks break. <laughs> right. So the, the, the solids are waxes and lipids and no, they, they compounds can... like that? as well. A lot of it's actually silts and sands that come from the oh. formation. Oh, right. uh, as well as, you know, little tiny and clay particles that actually come from the formation. Oh, interesting. Crazy. So really it's, you know, as you as you deplete the, the pressures in the rock as you produce it, you actually start breaking it. Um, it's one of these things that doesn't make a lot of sense because we usually think about increasing pore pressure or fluid pressure to break rock. It's the classic things you hear about from Hubbard and Ruby and the, the beer can experiment, if anyone did that in, in uh, undergrad. I don't know, we certainly did that. It's in, in Hubbard's classic paper on explaining how thrusts work, how thrust faults work. Uh, back from the 40s, he actually has this beer can experiment in an appendix. Um, and it's usually, we usually think about how poor, high pore pressures uh, generate faulting, but reduction in pore pressure can also generate uh, failure in rocks. And so it's something that, we're, that people are still trying to understand. Oh, interesting. So is your entire... Um office or lab full of rock samples that you stick under a microscope and analyze? I don't get to look at many rocks under the microscope, I must admit. I, I, one of the reasons I went into geophysics was so I wouldn't have to look under microscopes too much. I, I found that I do my head in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I do love looking at rocks, but I'm not very good under a microscope. Uh, I've got a lot of rock samples, but no, we, we certainly, you know, in some of the work I've, in, I've been uh, involved in has involved a lot of rocks getting broken in labs. But most of my work is involved in in situ, so actually understanding how stresses and things break in situ. Uh, we have to take things in the lab, but it's uh, it's a it's we can use different processes to understand about what's actually un going underground, happening underground. So describe to us a couple of those processes, a uh, uh, workflow of your analysis. Um, so the first thing we usually do it as, as, is trying to understand the stress tensor. So that's the all the components that make up the stress and the pore pressure. Because we we've long known in uh, from Tagazi's time in the 30s that it's the effective stress that controls deformation, not the total applied stress. So that's the stress minus the pore pressure. So the and in particular when you reduce the effective stress, you tend to promote failure in rocks. So we we've, we do a lot of uh, trying to understand the stresses, the vertical stress that's acting usually due to gravity, the horizontal stresses are usually due to tectonics. Uh, trying to actually understand those magnitudes trying to understand the pore pressures, and then trying to actually also understand the rock strengths, so the rheology of the rock and the properties of the rock, and then trying to figure out how the rock's going to break. And that can be, it depends on the process you're trying to do, um, whether or not you're trying to stop a tunnel from collapsing or a mine from collapsing, whether you're trying to stop a, bore, a borehole from breaking down and, and collapsing, whether you're trying to fracture rock for hydraulic fracture stimulation, or whether you're trying to understand whether a fault might slip, whether that's for seismicity, earthquake hazard risk or whether it might be for um, trying to keep hydrocarbons or carbon dioxide underground. So it's all about trying to understand how fluid uh, will interact with rocks, whether or not they might break rocks, and whether or not we might collapse structures like, like mines or, or tunnels or boreholes. That's really what geomechanics is, understanding how rocks break and then applying it uh, to, to various aspects. Very cool. Um, I see where we actually, turns out, to our audience, we're, we're live on air today with a video recording. Mark, I, I see your kids running around in the background. Are they oh, really? uh, little, uh, I'm, I'm actually, are they little geos in the making? That's a, that's a, I'm terrible when the screen, when I have the camera, you know, the little the little window in the bottom corner of the screen, I tend to look at it 
and, and too much. So I've actually covered it over. So I can't actually see what my camera is seeing unless I sort of take away a little bit of sheet of paper. I had, I had turned the light off before, but yeah, my little toddler is, uh, he hasn't had a nap today and yet he's still awake. He, uh, I thought he'd be fast asleep by now, but yeah, he's enjoying his little playroom in the background there. So, I like it. Are you training him up to be uh, little geos? Uh, starting to. Starting, I started to show him a few outcrops over the weekend. Uh, when we went away camping down south, but it's my, it's actually my um, of course he's three, so he loves dinosaurs and things like that. But it's and volcanoes. But it's actually my little eight-year-old that really seems to enjoy it, it a lot more. He keeps bringing rocks home from school and keeps uh, they're always the same thing. They're usually bits of concrete. There's only two types of rock around Perth, and one's this sandy limestone, you know, aeolian limestone, and the other one's concrete that you know is not really a rock. <laughs> and so it's it's always one of those two. You know, they just collect sand on your desk because he just leaves a big chunk of it on the desk, you know, disaggregates. But it's uh, yeah, they he loves he loves a bit of the rocks and the geology. He's very fascinated about how continents break apart and things. <laughs> well, it's got to be good for the kids to have such uh, an amazing teacher there uh, in the home as their dad. Are you are you excited to go back to work? It seems like you, you enjoy the teaching almost more than the working. Is that true? I, I think I do. I do love the teaching. Um, I must admit, I'm, like every academic, I, I like the teaching. I hate the marking. <laughs> Teaching's great when it doesn't have marking. Uh, and so I particularly enjoyed when I you know teach for... Uh, you know, go visit schools or things like that as well. I've done a lot of work, particularly with primary schools. Um, but yeah, no, no, I do love teaching. I absolutely love teaching. It's why I got into academia. It's uh, you know, you love the research, you love the teaching. Of course, unfortunately, academia also has a lot of administration and a lot of other things that take up a lot of your time. Um, but at the moment, I'm, it's one of the things I've quite enjoyed about the last few years is that I've been working for Chevron uh, and then essentially doing academia as a hobby. So I don't, have the, I don't have the administration side. I've just got some students. I get some time to do my own work. I had an agreement with the company that I could do my own work, but as long as it was nothing related to Chevron, could publish it without them, without them needing to see it, could talk to people in the media and things as long as it's not Chevron related. So, you know, it's, it was a very – it's a good relationship that we had. And I, so I could do my research as a hobby. It's always been a hobby since I was a kid. You know, I was, yeah. a, I was a classic nerdy kid, so like, like many others – so, you know, building crafts and things like that as a teenager. and so. That's really cool. I, I feel like um, Chevron has a bit of a, a reputation of, um, of being fairly, fairly closed. Um, but, and in fact, someone made a remark in the open source workshop the other week where, you know, he's like, I work for Chevron, so I felt like I shouldn't say anything. And... Um, you know, and it's not the first time I've heard that, and it's certainly not the only company with that reputation. You know, Shell, ExxonMobil come to mind. Um, but having said that, several of the people I know on Twitter or who blog or who go to kind of random conferences work at Chevron. Um, mm. so, so, so it does actually seem to have some tolerance, um, as it were, maybe underappreciated even by its own employees for that kind of, I don't know, extracurricular activity, you might call it. Um, do, 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 does that reflect your experience? It sounds like it. it sounds like yeah, it I was only there for a few years, so you know, I was only starting to get to the stage where I was had enough uh, work and things that were old enough to kind of get away with trying to publish them through Chevron, under mm. a Chevron affiliation. Um, but, you know, I certainly know a lot of well-published people 
uh, in Chevron. I mean, you've got your people like Henry Possimentia, who's you know one of the godfathers mm -hmm. of sequence photography. Uh, people like Bodo Katz, Barry Katz, I should say, is very big in seals. Um, a, a good colleague of mine is Russ Yui, who's who's really an expert on how on rock mechanical testing and, and shale rock mechanical testing in particular. And I've certainly seen them be able to publish uh, quite a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly it's not discouraged. It can be difficult to go through. It's usually just the number, the vast number of hoops you have to jump through to uh, publish things mm. from a company. Um, even if you just want to present a, a talk externally, obviously you have to go through all of the internal peer reviews and all of the external peer reviews with joint venture partners, and it can be a easily a three to six month process. Right. Um, you know, just to get an abstract approved can be at least you know two or three month process let alone a paper or, or a poster or something like that. So it, it is doable. It's just a lot of effort and time. And I guess it's not the it's not your core you know, KPI, is it? It's, uh, sure. I guess that's the difference. You know, whereas in academia, you know, publish or perish is really the motto. You have to keep putting yourself out there. You have to keep uh, trying to publish and present. And it's, it's something you, know, you, you do as something you enjoy as, you, as well. You, know, you, you get to really enjoy it. Um, yeah. But it's not a key thing. It's not something that you will get you a bonus or anything in, in a company. It's it's something they might let you do, but it's not something that will get you a you know will, will significantly advance your career. Yeah. Um, so I think a few will help, but it's it's not you know a long list of publications isn't something that they're really looking for. No. And uh, what what's the sort of um, state of of uh, Health, I guess, in academia in Australia at the moment. Like, is is it reasonably well funded? Um, how uh, are the universities doing? It's a very good question. I mean, I think it's actually it's it's probably going for a bit of a rough patch in the last year or two in particular. And nearly every university actually has been doing a a, a series of retrenchments, unfortunately, in redundancies. Mm -hmm. um, over the last two or three years, there's been a lot of redundancies, unfortunately, in across academia. So a lot of people who mm -hmm. might have been Universities for you know 10, 20 years are getting are getting the boot, um, and it's so it's actually been a bit of a tough time. Um, universities funding is very different, I think, in in the in Australia. It's probably a little bit more like in the UK. Uh, in the US, I know that you get a, a phenomenal amount of funding from industry and from government, and you know, the opportunities are just immense. Um, you know, the funding that you'll often get given to you by the university, for example, as a junior academic. In, in the US is you wouldn't even dream of getting that as a, as a full professor level in Australia. Uh, it's amazing how much funding is, is available. Um, so in, the, in Australia, I think yeah, funding really is a challenge. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to get grants. It's difficult everywhere to get grants, of course, but they, it, is, it is quite tricky in Australia with only very limited rounds and only ability to hold two grants at a time. Um, it's not like in some places where you can hold seven or eight you know, grants or you can you can manage many of them at a time. They're, they're very limited. They're three-year three programs, and you can only hold two. Right. You can only be involved in two. That's not even the first name. You can only be involved in two at any one time. Oh, wow. Uh, so, it's, it's, so it's fairly, fairly strict, and it can get, make it very hard. Right. Um, you know, and you can only apply for – there's only one round a year as well for most grants. So you, you can put in your grant in February, March, here back in October, and then you got your next chance again in February, March, the following mm -hmm. year. So it's uh, there's no ability, there's no sort of, oh, your your project needs maybe a bit of tweaking, and then you can reapply. If it doesn't get up, that's it. Yeah, right. Uh, 
So it's yeah, it's pretty. It's a tough. It is a tough environment in Australia. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of advantages in, in, from what I've seen in the US and the UK. There's some nice aspects here as well. Uh, you know, it, it is. They do tend to give you. A, there's some very strong advantages towards research. They do. There's a lot of support for research careers as well as teaching. There's a lot of facilities, good, great facilities, um, and a lot of good opportunities for collaboration with with other universities and to move around as well. Um, but it, it is tough. It's been a tough few years, and certainly a lot of my colleagues have really struggled. It sounds competitive. So, yeah, Mark, how how did you did you get into mud volcanoes? Um, really? Yeah. It's a, again comes back to my PhD. Um, you know, they, I just find them fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, features. Really, it's something you don't see too many of, you don't hear too many of, but they're, they're, it's incredible how many of them around. Um, I think I've started, it, again, it comes back to my PhD. In Brunei, there's a lot of pore pressure, a lot of very, very high pressure. And and a lot of that's mostly in, in shales, and it's there's just fluid and mud bleeding out all over the place, uh, onshore as well as offshore. That, that's what mud volcanoes are. They're just the Earth's way of bleeding off that really high pressure. You know, it's high enough to crack the rock or, or reactivate faults and to bleed off to the to the surface. So that's that's what you see. It's just really is water. Most of the water features, water escape features, that just happen to be carrying some clay or carrying some mud in them um, rather than it being really mud that's re remobilized. So these so things can be very dangerous. Pardon? Uh, these things can oh. be very dangerous. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Lucy? So the Lucy mud volcano is, is really one of the most rarest and weirdest features that we've ever seen. Um, the Lucy mud volcano, as you mentioned earlier, started 10 years ago. Uh, started on the 29th of May 2006. Uh, and it really is the first time we've ever seen in history a the birth of a brand new major mud volcano system. Mud volcanoes are geological features. They're usually around for you know thousands or millions of years. You know, we, we know many of them are there, but it's very rare for us to see brand new ones, particularly really big brand new ones. And mm. so in a rice paddy in the in, uh, surrounded by factories and towns in the city of Siduajo, which is just about 20 kilometers south of the city of Surabaya, which is Indonesia or East Java, Java's second largest city. You know, Java's one of the most populated parts on the planet. Uh, it's a very dense urban area. Um, in the middle of, in this rice paddy, just this big hole opened up and mud started spewing out of the ground. Uh, at a rate of about 5,000 cubic metres a day. That's a first. It very, then quickly bumped up to about 40,000 cubic metres per day. And then about a month and a half later, it was up to 100,000 plus cubic metres a day, which is, you know, filling an Olympic-sized swimming pool in about 20, 30 minutes. That's sort of how much was coming out. And, you know, suddenly this thing just started pouring mud out of the ground and it's surrounded by homes, it's surrounded by houses, and it just started flooding the area. Um, they kept trying to build dams to sort of hold it back, but they just kept falling and collapsing. The, uh, the, the rate just couldn't be managed. Mm. And eventually they've, they've got it under control where it's essentially flooding into just this big series of dams. There's now this giant mud lake. It's about seven square kilometres in size, just held back by dams and levees about 20 metres high. But under that lake is 40,000 people's homes and a whole bunch of factories and mosques and a, a large part of the town that's now just gone, uh, just completely gone, buried 40, 30, 40 metres in mud. It really is a, an amazing place. Now you go there and it's just a featureless mud lake 
but when I first started going there, you know, you could still see homes and roofs poking up. It was very much a you could really see this was this was people's homes that were flooded. Right. Uh, so it's really an amazing, amazing disaster. Something we've not ever seen happen anywhere else. We've seen mud volcanoes in many parts of the world, but we don't tend to live that close to them. Uh, and to have one suddenly open up was was quite extraordinary. It's also very well documented. Um, as if, if you go to um, Mark's Twitter account or our show notes, you can find links to a, a lot of media about Lucy, uh, pictures as Lucy evolved and covered and de- destroyed this area. Um, and it's it's fascinating. I, <clears throat> I mean, I can't imagine that volume of mud being ejected. It's, it's <clears throat> it had to be amazing. So yeah, it's incredible opportunity to stand on next to the volcano vent uh, in its first sort of year where they were actually able to, you were able to get out to it. They had a, a, a dam just around the vent. Uh, and it was just incredible how much mud was just pouring out of the ground. Yeah. Were, were you, um, were you in, involved in any uh, hydrocarbon exploration in that part of the world um, like before or, or since, I guess? And... Um, and I guess I'm also curious about, because I, I haven't been following it as closely as you, where the sort of uh, <laughs> the whole blame argument has sort of landed and if it, indeed it's still going on, because um, there was some, obviously some relationship with an exploration well that was being drilled in the area, right? Yes, yeah, so I hadn't, prior to the Lucy Mud Volcano starting, I had never worked in the East Java Basin. I'd done a, you know, the odd bit of, the odd bit of, studying of some of the other nearby basins, such as in Kalimantan, uh, on the other side, on, in Borneo. Um, but I had done a lot of work on mud volcanoes, so I worked on mud volcanoes in, in north in northwest Borneo as part of my PhD, and I'd worked on them in, in the Nile as well, as well as visiting several times to Azerbaijan for fieldwork on the many mud volcanoes that are onshore there, the hundreds of mud volcanoes that are onshore there. So I'd, I'd been, I'd already been very intrigued by mud volcanoes, and one of my first papers was on looking at the dynamics of, of how of the plumbing systems underneath mud volcanoes, the mechanics of them, how they actually form. And in that paper, I actually looked at how mud volcanoes are extremely similar to oil field blowouts. And in Brunei, there's a very nice example called Champion Field blowouts that they did it twice. That they had this large blowout that created these big, long five-kilometer fractures, five-kilometer-long fractures that started erupting all this fluid along the along these fissures, and they lasted for, and some of them lasted for years to decades. Uh, and the mechanics of those, I saw, was was almost identical to the onshore, uh, the onshore features that we could see of of, mobile, of shale dikes underground and and how they would they would they would uh, be the feeder systems for mud volcanoes. So I put this idea in place that, that human activity could, uh, in many ways, oil field blowouts are very similar to mud volcano systems underground. And then three or four years later, the Lucy thing uh, came about. I've been following it on, on the media, but it was actually one of my colleagues, a guy named Richard Davies, who's now at Newcastle University. He was at Durham at the time. He got in touch with me and said, you know, this is, this is your paper. Well, we've been looking at this and, you know, we've, We've been looking at this and seeing that what's been happening in the world. There was a well drilled 150 metres away that had some problems, uh, had some major kicks and well control issues in the day before uh, Lucy started erupting. And he was saying, look, our research, our, our indications suggest that this is, this is just like your models. Uh, this is just like your predictions. And that sort of 
got me then interested in actually really looking at the science of it and trying to get data out and trying to actually test this idea. So the, the Lucy Mud Volcano has got this huge controversy surrounding it that you alluded to before, Matt, and that's what triggered it. Why does a mud volcano suddenly appear? We've never seen it before. Something like this so big just suddenly appearing. And there, it effectively came down to two different hypotheses. One was that this was a drilling disaster uh, caused by a well control issue in the well Banjapanji 1 that was 150 metres away uh, and you know, had problems the day before. The other that the company drilling the well kept trying to advocate was that this was nothing to do with them, that this was a natural feature that was a consequence of uh, uh, an even worse disaster, uh, the great Jogjakarta earthquake that happened two days prior to Lucy erupting. Mm. So just two days, 48 hours prior to Lucy erupting, there was a magnitude 6.3 earthquake that tragically took uh, 5,400 lives uh, in, the south, in the town of Jogjakarta. Uh, but that's 270 kilometres away. So it's quite a long distance. But we mm -hmm. do know that earthquakes can remotely trigger mud volcanoes. We see them in a number of times. There was a very famous incident offshore Pakistan just in 2003, in an area called Gwadar, uh, where a, a mud volcano island just suddenly appeared. There was a big earthquake, 100-odd K away, and then suddenly the next day everyone notices big islands appeared off the coast. And it's a, it was a mud volcano that had been triggered by the earthquake. So there was these different ideas. Was it a natural event caused by an earthquake or was this a, a, a human event uh, caused by a drilling accident? And myself and others have done a lot of work on this, testing both hypotheses, uh, particularly people like Michael Manga at Berkeley and, and, and Max Rudolph, who was his PhD student at Berkeley, is now up at, I think, uh, Oregon State University looking at the earthquake side and myself also looking at the earthquake side. We've really been able to rule that out as being a, a viable mechanism. Uh, there's still a number of people out there who, who claim that, including a few scientists, uh, um, particularly in Oslo, as well as uh, in, in, in Switzerland. They really still argue that this was a natural disaster. But I think we've effectively ruled that out by a number of different processes. It's too far away. We've never seen any earthquake that far away of that magnitude trigger an event like this. It's, it's, it's all, almost uh, needed to have been 150 kilometres closer, really, for that magnitude to have had any 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 significance. We've seen other bigger earthquakes have no effect uh, in that location. So I think we've, and there's a lot of other geochemical data and other things to sort of support that this is this was not a natural disaster. Uh, and then myself with my drilling background and, and a few other uh, uh, geologists and engineers have really been looking at this from the drilling side and, and trying to work out whether or not the drilling could have triggered the disaster. And, and we're pretty confident that that's the case. So many things went wrong in this well they, they ignored a lot of what we would consider as basic safety procedures um, that we would, you would normally do in any well. And in fact, that's, that's a lot of my job at Chevron has been trying to avoid disasters from happening, uh, trying to avoid wells blowing up like we saw in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, um, 2011, I should say. Uh, it's, sorry, 2010. And it's a, it's, it's, you know, there's a number of procedures that we would normally do that were just not followed. And so the well was really in a, in a significant state and, and primed for being able to trigger such a disaster. Hmm. And so we're, we're, I would say we're 99% confident that the disaster was triggered by, by human activity now. And I think that's been well documented now in about, about eight or nine papers, I would say. Right. And I, I recall a, a few years ago at least, I thought it was sort of quite an um, unintuitive 
sort of twist, if you like, in that part of the story was how the the government, who I would have thought were would would scrutinise the industry side of it quite a bit, um, were were quite happy with their interpretation because of. Uh, the, the access that that gave them to international aid, essentially, that was sort of contingent on it being a natural disaster and not an industrial accident. There, there is that aspect. You know, that's that's one of the biggest differences with this disaster to others. You have an earthquake or a volcano, uh, and you know people recognise it, or a big storm or a cyclone. And people recognise it's a natural disaster, and people need help. And mm. so, you know, there's a lot of international relief and a lot of aid agencies, a lot of money that's provided to help people get back. Uh, in onto their lives, but if it's a human disaster, like the Gulf of Mexico blowout from uh, Deepwater Horizon, or, or something that is well and truly understood to be a human disaster, then of course that aid doesn't come. Um, you know that, that aid doesn't appear, and so it's expected that the, the the culprits or the people behind responsible would would you know fund all of the would fund all the compensation or pay the compensation. Mm. Now this disaster obviously has been a bit. Trickier because of this controversy, because mm. the the there's there's this I, there was this competing I, these competing ideas out there. Oh, it's a natural disaster, which you know, if it was a natural disaster, they might be able to get some some funding. But of course, with a lot of the other evidence pointing to it being a human trigger, uh, international aid agencies wouldn't touch it. So it was a, one of these disasters that the company wouldn't really was was very unwilling to sort of fund or, or re, recompensate people. Uh, but also international agencies were not willing to fund or support. Um, so the people, unfortunately, the 40,000-odd people were left in limbo. And the Indonesian government, in its sort of... It, it's a very complicated situation, and Indonesian politics is not something I've, I've ever managed to get my head around. My, uh, my, my wife's family's from Indonesia. I, you know, I try to understand, but it's a very difficult environment. But they came up, came up with this very unusual scenario where... They, were, they officially declared the disaster to be a natural disaster caused by the earthquake, but also ordered the company that was drilling the well to pay for most of the compensation. Uh, about, it's wound up being about 60 or 70%. They, they defined an area that they said, right, the company is responsible for all the, all the damage in that area. Unfortunately, then, a, little, a bit after that, the, the mud volcanism spread and covered more land. And that was then had to be covered by the government. They they didn't blame the uh, or, or couldn't call or couldn't check uh, get the company to pay for that. So there was this a lot of and the company then was going well. We don't have the money to pay for this. So people were basically just left in limbo. So uh, most people didn't even get their money until this year. Oh my goodness! It was about, it was about March this year, and even then that was funded by the Indonesian government. The Indonesian government actually said right rather than waiting for the company to pay. We will give the money to the company to pay people, and then we'll try to get the money off the company. Yeah. So it's now it's essentially uh, the Indonesian government trying to get the money back from the company rather than poor people sort of waiting years, almost a decade, for yeah. compensation for losing their homes. But it's, so there's a little bit of a parallel. I mean, it's not uh, necessarily... I mean, it's completely different, let's just say that, but there's a bit of a parallel, I think, with... You know the arguments about what's causing uh, lots of earthquakes in places like Oklahoma, where there's you know a lot of drilling and water disposal and fracking going on. Um, that you know it's it, it, it's clearly an area where 
humans are at a bit of conflict with, you know, on the one hand, important slash, you know, generative um, industry and its activities uh, that we enjoy the spoils of, so to speak. And on the other hand, you know, just the natural environment and things that we don't, that are highly complex, invisible, non-linear systems that we're kind of um, playing, you know, that we're playing with. And uh, anyway, so it, it's kind of interesting to see it's, in a way, that Lucy event is sort of the crystallized like um, human slash nature interface, right? There are, there are model oh sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Give us a give us a brief uh, synopsis of, of how a, uh, a drilling a well would, would create this this problem. Mm -hmm. how, how deep is the pressure formation and, and how does how, what are the kinematics of this situation? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so they're drilling this well. They're actually targeting a carbonate formation, so what would be a, a reefal mound uh, that was afford to be about 2,700 metres down, wound up being a little bit deeper. Um, that was supposed to be filled with gas. The interesting thing was that the, there was a neighbouring well seven kilometres away that uh, that drilled previously. There's a neighbouring reefal mound. There's a, there's a line of them. This was actually the only one that hadn't been drilled. Uh, all the others have been drilled and found to be non-commercial. Um, but this one, this one they were interested in because it was the only one that didn't have a lot of faulting over the top of it. So they thought, oh, maybe this is sealed. They thought all the others had previously had gas, it was residual gas and, and hydrocarbons, but they thought it had been breached and all that, that material, all that hydrocarbons had been lost. This one they thought, well, this one looks sealed, so let's drill this. But they, they started having problems with drilling the well even early. Uh, they wound up having to set what's called the protective casing, significantly shallower than they originally planned. And they, they designed the well to set this steel casing, which is what we need in case we suddenly get a big burst of pressure in the well. We have to have this steel casing so that the rock doesn't fracture. It's very hard to fracture steel. It's actually quite easy to fracture rock with enough put enough pressure on it. That's what we do in hydraulic fracture stimulation. We just increase the pressure in, on the rock until it breaks. Uh, until it cracks. So to avoid that, in case we have a kick or a blowout, we, we, we put this steel casing down. Now they set their casing early, but then they decide to skip a few casing points and then keep drilling towards this target reservoir. And essentially they hit this reservoir, the pressures are in this reservoir are extremely high, what we know from the, the adjacent carbonate reefs, um, well higher than is required to break the rock at shallower depths. So what happened is they, they hit this reservoir, they took what's called a kick, which is where all this fluid comes into the well. Uh, eventually they, they didn't seem to take the normal actions, which would be to shut the well in, what we call the blowout preventer, until actually about an hour and a half later when all this water started gushing up from the well. Uh, rather, at least it wasn't oil or gas, which would have been flammable and nasty. It was high-pressure water rushing out of the well. Um, at that point they shut in the blowout preventer. Now when they do that, it's like putting a cork on a, on a bottle of champagne, the gas is still there, the pressure is still there. And in fact, fluid's still coming into the well, but the, the, the fluid can't go anywhere, it's trapped. So the pressure in the well starts to build and build and build until it eventually will reach equilibrium or you break something. And in this case, the pressure's got so high that they started breaking things, they started breaking the rock. And we started, they started losing a lot of mud and a lot of fluid downhole as well. And that's, that's really, it was a, it's a natural way of 
what we do in hydraulic fracture stimulation. In hydraulic fracture stimulation, we just keep in injecting fluid at high pressure until we crack the rock, and then we keep doing more and more to propagate that fracture to make it bigger. And in this case, it's just the deep rock, the deep pressures coming up into the well and then going up, using the well to get into shallower levels to actually then start creating its own natural fracture. Sure. Okay, so uh, we might call that an underground blowout where the yes. high-pressure fluid uh, migrates on the outside of the casing of the well and fractures a, a shallower... Uh... And sadly, underground blowouts are actually a lot more common than the surface ones that we hear about, the ones you see on the media where things are blowing up at the surface or near the wellhead. It's actually about 10 underground blowouts occur in the industry for every one surface blowout. Um, but generally, an underground blowout doesn't get high enough level to break the rock. In some instances, it gets big enough to, you know, to the pressures get big enough to actually crack the rock, and then you can have the eruptions occurring even kilometers away, like the example I talked about earlier in Brunei, where it was up to five kilometers away. And, and we've seen that in, 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 in dozens of places, actually, where these, the, the underground blowout might, relate, might generate a surface eruption somewhere remotely away from the well. But it all comes back down to that effective stress, changing the pressure and the stress under underground, and it's the same thing with fracking, it's the same thing with induced seismicity. They're actually strongly related. Well, I encourage our listeners to, to go check uh, out Mark's uh, Twitter and his online presence. He has a wealth of knowledge, and as you've heard over the past uh, episode, we he, uh, much of his work is, is connected in, in, to, a, to a layman seemingly unconnected ways. So it's uh, he's got some fascinating stuff up there, and I urge you to go uh, read it all. So, uh, Mark, thanks for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, cheers. Uh, we'll see you next week, everybody, with episode 14 of Undersampled Radio. Kaboom. 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 Kaboom.